tonight on Arena. Jared Harris talks to us about his latest feature film, Reawakening, and Peter Whelan on a busy season ahead for the Irish Baroque Orchestra. Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the program at RTE Arena. Recognised for his compelling performances in the acclaimed series such as Mad Men, Chernobyl, The Terror, and The Crown, Jared Harris has consistently demonstrated his versatility as an actor. Son of the late Richard Harris and Elizabeth Reese Williams, he has forged his own path in the world of entertainment, picking up a Best Actor uh, BAFTA along the way. He's in Dublin this week for the premiere of his latest film, Reawakening, a psychological thriller that follows the story of a couple who have lived in an agonising limbo of grief and guilt for 10 years after their only child ran away from home. When she returns, now aged 24, tensions resurface, suspicions are raised and Jared Harris stars alongside Juliette Stevenson and fellow The Crown alumna Erin Doherty. Delighted that Jared Harris is, is with me in studio this evening. It's a wonderful script. We were talking just before coming to air, Jared, about this was obviously something you saw when you read it. There was something in this script that caught your imagination and this character of John that you play. Yes. Well, first of all, I just want to say thank you for mentioning my mum. You're the first person ever to do that in an intro. Bless you. Important that they're both there. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, the the script, um, it's, it was, you. I mean, when you, I read lots of scripts and you immediately know when you're reading not just a good script, but a script where the writer's in control of what they're, what they're writing about, what they're interested in investigating. And this one superficially is about um, a mystery. And, but, but underneath it, it's really about how the two main characters choose to handle uh, grief and handle this, this thing, this event that's occurred to them. And, um, and they handle it in very, very different ways. I mean, unusually in these circumstances when parents lose a child, they don't stay together. And they, they, they have managed to keep the, the marriage uh, together. And in large part by taking that very English uh, way out of not talking about it. Um, but you could tell that they are, it's, they're completely still gripped by it. And it's very cleverly indicated by the writer because after you see them sitting down having that, we introduced the characters on that first uh, intro, they sit down to watch a police procedural about the disappearance of a young girl. So it's still very much there in the kind of, the, it's almost a negative space of their relationship that they're too frightened to investigate because they don't want to know the answer to what, how they managed to resolve it. And Virginia Gilbert, we should say, because we, you're, yes. you're speaking so strongly yeah. about the writing, she is the writer, as she and is the director, director of, yeah. of the film as well. There's, there's um, a character appears then, the Aaron Doherty character mm. comes back and here we go, um, after yeah. 10 years. Yeah, I mean, it basically is yeah. that they, this couple's daughter um, runs away from home when she's 14 and they hear nothing about her mm. after that and then they don't know what's happened to her. There's a big police, uh, there's a manhunt for her, but she's not, um, there's no information about her. And 10 years later, there's a sort of reenactment of it to try and see if they could spark any memories. And then some months afterwards, a young woman shows yeah. up who's 24 years old, who looks very like she could, the way that this 14-year-old would be 10 years later, and has a lot of, um, knows a lot of... Uh, has all the right answers or most of the right answers and I get you know and the yeah. mystery of the film is is that the mother recognizes her right away accepts her right away but he doesn't yeah and the and the paradox of that is is that he's spent the entire 10 years looking for her trying to find her yeah let's have a listen to a clip which gives us a sense of that that dynamic between yeah. the husband and wife yeah. that john yeah this character has this young woman has appeared into their lives He's very dubious about it, um, and on the on the surface of it, uh, Juliet Stevenson as Mary is a lot more accepting of the person's bona fides. I know you want this more than anything. God knows I do too. But you must feel it. You must feel it isn't right. Don't tell me what I feel. Don't. For ten years, 
I've heard nothing, but you have to stay positive. You have to believe. You have to give up hope. You have to find peace. For ten years, I've been told what I have to feel, what I have to think. And I did what I was told. I had no choice. I had nothing to hold on to. You had me. That's Jared Harris and Juliette Stevenson yeah, she's there. She's magnificent. Yeah. Uh, you're not too bad yourself either. <laughs> the pair of you, there, there is a lovely, that's, that's in, the, in the film we're talking about this evening, Reawakening, um, uh, which opens the, the Dublin International Film Festival. There's an extraordinary scene that, uh, and I don't want to go into the specifics of what, who's speaking even here because it, I might give too much away by doing that. But there's an extraordinary scene, uh, scene in the film where you're sitting at a table because he, he loves uh, little toy trains, model trains. Easy, yeah. yeah. So he's there kind of playing with this train and there's, or fixing this train. And there's a character telling him some vital information to the entire plot standing right beside him. It, I, I timed it when I was when I was watching it. The the character's speech, the character who's speaking, speaks for maybe three and a half to four minutes. The camera does not move off you for almost all of that. There's a little shot of the other character at the beginning and at the end of of the speech. It's a phenomenal, brave moment to just let the camera sit and watch you reacting, which is of course what it's all about. Well, part of it, yeah. I mean, that was Virginia's choice, so mm. you'd have to ask her <laughs> about that choice. I mean, I, you have no idea. It's something that you have to give up as an actor, the idea of being able to have any say about the edit, mm. you know? So you really, every single shot that you do, whatever it is, you have to do it with it in mind is like any part of it could be in. You don't know what's going to be in and what isn't going to be out, so... You have to be ready always, every single time yeah. the camera's rolling, you're on camera, you have to be present the yeah. whole time. Uh, well, it, yeah. did, it did strike me that kind of acting is reacting thing is very much what, what you see in, in that scene. It also struck me, seeing as you're saying that you have to come in absolutely ready to go. Um, you had just finished, when did you finish the run of the Homecoming, the, the painter player? I just did that less than a month ago in London. Yeah, yeah well, I'm wondering about getting back because there'd be yeah. so much big screen stuff in the in the last period of time you know oh yeah what was it like going back yeah what was a lot like of going mental back? a lot of mental anguish over the fact that you, you, your responsibility when you're doing films or television whatever camera work is that you're telling this the story a little piece of a time so you you prep that this you have to have the whole architecture of the play in your head mm. The good side of it is, is that you get to tell the whole story and you are in control of the edit. You can decide which choices, which takes, if you like, you like better that you discovered in rehearsal, mm. which bits you're still trying to find and play with. I hadn't done a play for 17 years, 15, 17 years. And so the anxiety then is that you're going to forget. You're going to go up, they call it drying. Yeah. And, um, you know, that's just, that was the big fear constantly for the first couple of weeks. But, you know, the, the truth is, is that it happened, you know, a fair bit. And I know the story, I knew the story well enough that I could um, improvise and help get the, you know, hand the baton over to the next person so that they weren't completely screwed. Yeah, so, and then, you know, and you, make, you make a little bit up and then you sort of stumble your way towards where you're, the next bit you're supposed to be at. But, it, yeah, it was. It was, and, of course, with advancing age as well, you, uh, that's always a concern that your memory starts. To, it's weird. It just, you, you're on stage and you suddenly go blank. The thing about that play was as well is you have to really concentrate because, you know, Pinter's known for his pauses. And if you've sort of checked out for a while and you check back in when there's a pause, you don't know if it's because it's your turn or not, <laughs> you know, and then you could start speaking right in the middle of someone else's bit. And they look at you like, and what are you doing? Why? <laughs> it's not you yet, you know. But that, that brings me back to that thing of, you know, that big long shot that I spoke about uh, within Reawakening, you know, that it is about this, this thing. You have to be constantly sure. listening. Yeah. You know, if you're not listening, you're not in the play. Yes. And therefore you don't even hear the pause. Listening is is very, uh, is a difficult, I don't want to call it a trick. It's a difficult aspect of screen acting to learn. And 
um, you can tell immediately. And for example, on Mad Men, I directed an episode in the last season and I uh, shadowed um, uh, the season before. And John Hamm, if you watched his coverage uh, and any scene he was in, he told a whole story, no matter what, if he was not speaking or not. But he told his version of the story of the scene, and you could actually have just played it on what he was doing. The same with um, Elizabeth Moss. They they were, and and it, partly it was just innate talent, but also it was a they were making choices constantly about what how what their character felt about what was happening in the scene and what they were hearing and what they were reacting to. Did you learn a lot about acting from directing an episode like that? I learned what not to say in auditions. <laughs> I learned that uh, people like shoot themselves in the foot within sometimes within 30 seconds of walking into a room. Um, I learned a lot from that side. And I, little things like quite often when you're acting on camera, if you make a mistake, you'll stop. John Slattery taught me something about that, which was don't stop because quite often the energy that you that happens because you've made a mistake mm. will mean that the next thing you're going to do you're going to do it you're going to discover it in a way that you haven't done it before and the bit after you've made the mistake is going to be really good yes um, allow the mistake happen yeah let the mistake happen and move on and just trust that they'll you know they'll cut it out in the edit now I'm saying so you you picked up on the presence of your mother in in the introduction. I mean, I'm sure everybody has asked you a million times when you watched your father acting on screen. What did you learn from that X Y Z? And we can come back to that yeah. in a minute. But what about your mother and her acting? Well, how much of that did you see, and how much of that? No, I never saw her act ever. No, I mean she had three kids by the time she was 25, and mm. you know my father wasn't a Mister Mum, so and his career was taking off. So um, she. He got a career and she got us, you know, and that was tough. You know, she was she she loved acting. She always wanted to be an actress ever since she was a young girl. She had to give it up, but she was always passionate about it. And she was very passionate about theatre in a way that he wasn't. Um, he he always pursued the dream of of the movies and later in his life went back to the theatre famously. Yeah. Um, but I mean, but he, he at some point he would always talk about great performance he'd seen, but the importance of theatre to the, to the training of an actor was something that my mother always had. And your starting point in, I mean, I'm thinking of coming from a family where your mother had been an actress, mm. uh, where your father clearly, when you weren't even thinking about anything remotely like a career, your father was a star, an international sure. star at, yeah. at that point. You know, how difficult is it for you to kind of even half raise your head above the parapet thinking, I might want to do something like this. How tough was that at the time? I think that's probably... I mean, I don't think I, I had that thought while I was in England. I went to college in America, yeah. Duke University, sort of, you know, stumbled into it, into the theatre programme there and, and enjoyed it for the first time, enjoyed, enjoyed the, the camaraderie of the whole experience, the, the extreme and in the intense, you have to get on with people, you have to get to know each other, you've got to figure out you're all trying to pull this thing off. Everyone's, you know, a bit nervous about what's going to happen. And then I enjoyed the research and the studying I, in a way that I wasn't ever very interested in, That's in regular classwork. And how anonymous could you be in, in an American university like or college like that? I'm, you know, that wasn't something that people were aware of I mean, mm. there, there were a few people who knew but and or who were curious but by and large it's a big school there's five and a half thousand people there so you know and probably lots of other people there who had famous mothers and fathers in, I don't in think other. they they necessarily put that together I mean you know what's interesting is in the states it still happens where I'm meeting people and I'm doing things like this mm. and they they don't know or I'm. I'm. I mean, I was offered. Uh, I was offered um, to play Henry Higgins in uh, a production of My Fair Lady, and they had no idea that Rex Harrison was my stepfather. Yeah. So th this kind of thing would happen all the time. 
in in here or in England, they're much more aware of that connection. And that normally, if it's going to come up, it comes up right away. In the States, it doesn't come up until the very end, if it's going to come up. At all. And did your mother and father see you act in any of those college productions? She came and saw me, and she told my father, you should go and see him, he's very good. And he said, well, you would say that, you're his mother. And... Um, <laughs> I mean, you're his, you're his mother, yeah. yeah. And and, so, and then he didn't, he wouldn't come down and see me in anything until I graduated, and I was doing entertaining Mr. Sloan. And I'd, by then, I'd also directed a movie called uh, Darkmoor, which was a, you know, a pretty pretentious uh, film about um, subliminal advertising. <laughs> and um, and he came after, it was in the summer after I graduated, he came and saw the film in the afternoon mm. and he saw the play in the evening and he was going to tell me to be a director. But I remember it still really clearly five minutes into the play, I got my first laugh out of him. And his face when I, when I saw him after the play was just so, he was just so excited because he he said, you know, you've got it, you should do this. This is, he encouraged me to pursue it at that point. And... It opened up a whole new area of, of a relationship for us because he could talk to me about his passion yeah. and I was I wanted to know all the granular detail about it, you know. So did you then get to know Richard Harris the actor? In a different way, yeah. As I a, mean, he reenacted performances he'd seen, Olivier's death scene in Coriolanus. Um, a, there was another famous moment in Titus Andronicus uh, that Olivier did at the where he has his hand cut off in uh, we did down at the uh, Stratford uh, um um, performances of Brian mm. Paul Schofield's and, uh, and would he do that in a way that was you know rather than being a pastiche or a kind of a, a no I mean he, he was something that had made such a profound impact on him yeah and you'd, you'd be discussing it's very hard to discuss a, a, a piece if you both haven't read it so invariably you would end up talking about the classics and the interpretations and different actors had different Peter O'Toole's interpretation of mm. Hamlet versus Paul Schofield's interpretation you know, and why that led to cho making choices about certain moments in the play, and they found why that was different to the other person, and it made sense to this interpretation as opposed to another. You know, uh, that almost sounds like a kind of an apprentice master type of relationship. Sure, I mean that was the only time I remember he came up. It's when he came down to see me in the play, and uh, and he we were driving in the car, and he suddenly I forget we're mostly talking about it, and he goes suddenly went. He just stopped the conversation and went, I'll tell you what acting is. He goes, acting. Acting is. Acting is to act. And I I was so being primed to be handed the sort of, you know, the secret. And I looked at him and was like, he's me argued me, you know. <laughs> and what the hell does that mean? And I have to tell you, for a long time, it really confounded me. And then at a mm. certain point in my life, I went, oh, yeah, it's, it makes complete sense. Yeah. Uh, cooking, cooking is cooking. It, acting is... It, acting, is <laughs> acting is to act. Yes. I was, I, was, I was hoping for something that would sort of make it make sense a lot quicker than it, it's taken. It took it a few years. <laughs> yeah. a few years. Can, I, can I listen to a little bit of Chernobyl? Yeah, this, sure. I mean, just remind us of, of the character here. This is a man who has sat on secrets yeah. for a long, long time. Well, he was part of the he's, he was part of the the problem for mm. a long time, if you like. Yeah, uh, yeah, and then you know kept in the dark because he didn't have this, he didn't have all the information. Um, I, I mean, in this version of the story, has identified the the flaw, the technical flaw as to why the RBMK reactor exploded. But the real reason is because they. They lied about, yeah. um, they kept the information away from the people who were actually running the thing. So, of course, at some point, they were going to create the exact circumstances that was going to allow it to explode. Let's listen to the, the moment at which he's, if this is Vegaslav, mm. finally saying, no, I, I cannot continue mm. with this secrecy. Mm. No one in the room that night knew the shutdown button could act as a detonator. They didn't know it because it was kept from them. Comrade Legasov, you're contradicting your own testimony in Vienna. My testimony in Vienna was a lie. I lied to the world. I'm not the only one who kept the secrets. There are many who were following orders 
from the KGB, from the Central Committee, and right now there are 16 reactors in the Soviet Union with the same fatal flaw. Three of them are still running, less than 20 kilometers away at Chernobyl. Professor Legasov, if you mean to suggest the Soviet state is somehow responsible for what happened, then I must warn you, you are treading on dangerous ground. I've already trod on dangerous ground. We're on dangerous ground right now because of our secrets and our lies. They're practically what define us. When the truth offends, we, we lie and lie until we can no longer remember it. it is even there, but it is still there. Every lie we tell incurs a debt to the truth. Sooner or later, that debt is paid. Yeah, and when you, you talk about great, the, what, the difference between great writers and good writers, and a great writer always has their theme in mind when they're writing. And of course, that is the theme of Craig's script, which is that the idea is that, that we incur a debt to the truth with every lie that we tell. And the reason why the show is always relevant is that, you know, people in power are always lying. And so the, the, when that show came out, it was in one particular period. And then um, not long afterwards, it sort of had a revival because of the whole COVID thing. And, you know, it's constantly relevant because of the way that that power reacts to the truth. It surprised all of us in the way that it had that effect around the world um, because it, we knew it was a, a, a really good piece of work. But we didn't expect it to resonate that way uh, globally, the way that it did. And, um, and you know, you can never know what that... Re you can never anticipate that kind of reaction. So it was kind of a, you know, a good HBO art house piece, if you like, that suddenly took off into this the completely different big way. Big commercial, yeah. popular, yeah. popular success. Briefly before we finish up, Jared, will you get will you get to Limerick? Will you get to Munster at any point along the way? I'm thinking particularly of you know the archive of your father's material. Yeah, Some sure, incredible stuff there. That's I think that's happening next year. I'm um, we've I've been talking to the people at uh, at Cork, um, and we're starting to put together. You know, they've they've done this whole thing of archiving everything that's in it. Mm. And then um, we're coordinating with the Hunt Museum in Limerick to start trying to decide what to include in it because there's just so much material in there. What is was the one piece of material that you found in the midst of all of that archive that kind of punched you in the stomach? Wow. I mean, that wasn't a trick in the movie. That really was my younger brother f coming across that piece of material. You're talking about in the documentary? In the documentary, towards the end, my younger brother comes across a notebook and it's this very, um, it's tough to read. It was a, 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 a sort of a, a, a diary entry, if you like, where he's talking, examining himself and his, um, how he feels about himself, his relationship to himself and to his public image. And, 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 he, and it ends with the problem all started at Overdale, which is where he grew up. Yeah, that was a surprise. Uh, you know, there's a, 150 poems in there, and some of them are are really touching, sad, romantic things about failed relationships and failed love affairs. Or, and and those two chief ones in his life were with my mother, and then with his second wife, Anne Tuckell. Mm. And they're very biographical, so there was there was shocks. Um, and the other thing that I didn't know that he did that he had this thing where he would sign off on uh, letters that he wrote with this sort of weird squiggly sort of face. He never did that with me. Uh, so I'd never seen that before. But he did it, always did it with my younger brother. And so he had seen it before and he had letters from him where he did that, but I, I'd never seen it. Did you feel left out? Well, the the thing about that documentary was that he had different... The reason why it was so interesting to Adrian, the director, to yeah. do was he we all had very different relationships with him. And then as you discussed his relationships with other people in his life, he was never the same thing to everybody. He was always a different person, if you like, with everybody. And that's what became fascinating about it. 
written about him, you know, and that's the reason why we were still trying to figure out who he was. <laughs> and I'll, I'll finish with a question to come back to, to reawakening since uh, Thank you. it's have getting that, <laughs> getting that, that Irish premier. How nice is that for you? Because you talk about there's a, a pent up Englishness in that they're not talking about stuff, sure. the husband and wife here, but that it's getting its world premiere or got its world premiere as part of the Dublin International Film Festival. This was Virginia's um, first choice for where she wanted it, the, the, the premiere to be. So we're really grateful to the Dublin International Film Festival to giving us that opportunity. Jared, lovely to have spoken to you. Thanks so Thank much you. for being Bless with you. us. That's Jared Harris and Reawakening premiered at the Dublin International Film Festival on Saturday. It will go on general release later this year. Irish Baroque Orchestra has launched its spring-summer season for 2024. Highlights include a celebration of the great Baroque composer Bach, Vivaldi and Handel in individual concerts and collaborative partnerships. The annual Dublin Handel Fest, now in its fourth year, a summer tour of Mr Charles the Hungarian to the United Kingdom and Belgium and the launch of IBO Infinity initiatives to improve social outcomes in our community. But it begins uh, this new 2024-2026 Bach cycle with the St Matthew Passion conducted by Peter Whelan performances in Drogheda in Dublin and Drogheda uh, the Bach work regarded as a quintessential masterpieces of classical sacred music it's Bach's account of Christ's passion using the Gospel of Matthew expressed through music that is profoundly moving in all kinds of ways delighted that Peter Whelan is with me in, in studio this evening the Bach Matthew passion the Matthew passion in particular Peter it it really is it's the Bach is at the top end of most compositional lists. This is at the top end of Bach compositions. Exactly. It's a huge thing. And, and, and you know, coming, to, we haven't started the process yet. We're meeting the singers tomorrow. But uh, uh, I, I, it's very intimidating work, I have to say, approaching it. It's just so huge, you know, for it's like a Ulysses or something like that. It's mm. a whole world within itself. It means so much to so many people. And it's epic. It's just on this huge scale. Um, uh, and you just have to like pick it apart piece by piece and, and work your way through and try to tell the story with who you have in front of you. But always, the the you know it, it adds up to this immense you know whole when mm. the, everything comes together and the, the storytelling comes together. But it is a a huge thing. And and it is that it's I suppose it's important to remember that because you know in in many Easter ceremonies in Christian churches the, the passion is often in inverted commas acted out. You know you have even the congregation having to shout up certain lines along. Yeah. The way and different people playing different parts. Essentially, what Bach did was he, instead of having the congregation shout up, he got everybody to sing, including the <laughs> congregation. You're right. It, it is a, dr- a dramatic retelling of the story, and uh, and at the time in Leipzig as well, opera was a, the new thing. So it's, it's, it's as operatic as Bach mm. got. He never um, wrote an opera, but this came as close as possible. And you can imagine some of the older people in the congregation uh, tutting, seeing all of this kind of modern effects been used. But as you say, the the, the congregation were singing their chorales and were expected mm. to join in. They're, they're, they're tunes that would have resonated with people and resonated with the moment. A, a lot of a lot of the passion story is asking, or the way Bach presents it, or the, the Matthew uh, uh, passion, is asking the, the, the congregation, what would you do in this situation? Feeling the yeah. emotions, feeling it in real time and, and asking how you would How would react. you respond? How yep. would you, however, there is one um, alto aria in part two of the, of the uh, Passion. It's a long piece, it has to be said. So it's, a, yeah. it's a three-hour piece or thereabouts with an interval, I guess, somewhere in that region. But um, as, as we listen to, to this Urbar Madich um, from, from the Matthew Passion, it starts with beautiful violin tune. What is the alto going to sing when the voice eventually comes in? Well, basically, this is um, uh, um, um, St. Peter realising his awful mistake and he just suddenly, he, he's weeping and he says, what have I done? And he, he, he doesn't know how to cope and every, all of those emotions are in this music. Yeah.
go. That's the voice of Anne Sophia von Otter, I do believe, they're singing Erberma Dich, mein God, have mercy on me, my God or my Father, uh, from the St. Matthew Passion of uh, Johann Sebastian Bach. Peter Whelan will be performing this with the Irish Baroque Orchestra and on f- this coming Friday, is it, in, in, in St. Patrick's Cathedral right. in, in Dublin and then you're down in St. Peter's in Drogheda, in, in Drogheda on, exactly. on the Saturday night. There's, there's a, there are huge forces involved in all of this. You've put together a chorus who will be singing the various parts, as well as the soloists who will be singing. Who's <laughs> somebody who will have to take on the Abarma Dick exactly. in the midst of it all? Well, we've we've paired it back to its 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 essentials basically. So it's it's one person singing each part. So there are a lot of people on stage. There's two separate mm. orchestras. Um, but uh, a lot of times, especially in, in days gone by, they would have used huge forces, like hundreds of people singing this. But uh, we have like, uh, so the two separate choirs have uh, four voices each and we have an evangelist. We have 10 singers in total. So it's, I wouldn't say it's like a chamber music mm. uh, version, but this is, there's a good, uh, uh, people seem to think nowadays that in, in Leipzig and Bach's time, that's probably what all that were available to sing it. So um, we're experimenting with that idea and it becomes a much more personal experience with the fewer people. But uh, very complex thing nonetheless. And I would say nowhere to hide if you have one soprano, <laughs> one alto, one tenor, one bass. Absolutely. And as the second choir made up of the same. It's like, it's like basically they're soloists even though they may be singing in harmony with each other. Exactly. They they're, they're each uh, have individual stories to tell that they all have little roles in the, in, the, in, the, uh, in the drama as well. But yeah, there's nowhere to hide for any of them and we've got a really, really great team this time around. Uh, well, we, we talk about, um, you, you said that this is about as opera as Bach got, um, I, I think we we may have spoken briefly about Vivaldi when you did when you were involved in that opera with the with the Irish National Opera. I mean Vivaldi, you just no Vivaldi wrote concerti. That's what he did. He wrote the Four Seasons. <laughs> he he did all those violin works. Yeah. And some would say he wrote the same concerto five hundred and seventy seven times or whatever yeah, number of that's times. Right. It is. Stravinsky said that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, no. Their opera was a big part of Vivaldi's life. In fact, am I right in thinking that during his lifetime that was what basically he was known for? Yeah, you're absolutely right. That 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 that, that was it. He was an opera composer, and that's what he was most passionate about. He 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 um, composed several operas. He did several pasticcios, mm-hmm. which are just mixtures of of different composers together. But that was his. He's mostly known in his lifetime as an opera composer. So it's really fun um, uh, with the uh, the Irish National Opera and and an Irish Baroque Orchestra to to kind of explore these like little known works. Mm. We, we were uh, travelled around Ireland last year and we're, we're doing the same this year and going to the, the Royal Opera House as well in the Limbury Theatre. And I think we were the first people to perform uh, Vivaldi in, in, in the Opera House in London in, in hundreds and hundreds of years at least. Yeah. So, uh, uh, but it's great to share that with audiences again. It's it's really wonderful music, well-crafted uh, theatre. So it's, uh, it's a real joy. And it is very dramatic. I'm, I'm going to listen to an aria, Siam Navi Alonde Algenti, if that is if something close to what, what, where are we at in the opera? Because it's about the Olympics really, or it's kind of, <laughs> we're back in ancient Greece, are we? That's right. Yeah, And, and, and of course, 2024 is the year of the Olympics in, mm. in, in Paris, so it, it, it rings true with that. But uh, so often in in, uh, in these 18th century operas, there's very complicated uh, stories, uh, love stories, and and uh, romances, and often the the turbulence of, of of the heart is compared to a storm at sea, and that's what we're hearing. Yeah, and in fact, in the instrumental introduction to it, which we will hear coming in in a minute, it is like a storm at sea. He he really creates dramatic effects in music and in voice. He's a wonderful word painter, Vivaldi. Yeah, well, let's have a listen to the musical introduction and then the aria itself. Oh, 
just to get a sense of the drama. And as you were saying, as you were listening there, Peter Whelan, that's uh, for Vivaldi's L'Olympiad, which is one of the operas that um, Irish Baroque Orchestra and Irish National Opera are involved in uh, in the upcoming season. It, it's a very different type of world from the Bach that we heard as well. Tell me about the Irish Youth Baroque Orchestra and the dancers that are going to be involved. Is it in the water music? Handles yeah, water music? That's right. I mean, they were doing wonderful things with the, with the, the youth orchestra. Um, and it's just amazing to see the people coming through who are inspired by the work we're doing, who are interested in the in the early music that we play. Oh. Uh, so we kind of have a fresh take on on, on on a lot of early music. And yeah, we're going to mix them with, with dancers because so much of the, the music from the 18th century is dance based. Um, even, even, you know, even in the Bach too, you, you find gavots yeah. built into the, or, or minuets built into the music, the structure of the music, which could also... Um, even a religious music could connect you more to the celestial realm they would have thought at the time but uh, it's it's so important to know you know how the body moves it's strange I, th- I think nowadays could be everything every, all pop music's in 4-4 four, four, but back then we have a lot more 3-4 yeah. uh, groove um, so it's, it's it's just important to see how people would have danced and moved to this. It's really instructive for 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 everybody and especially these these young players. Yeah, I guess to to, to actually see the thing danced in front of you will give you a real sense of what the rhythm what the rhythm Absolutely. of the dance is. Uh, but also as part of uh, Handelfest, you're there's some community uh, workshops and outreach, particularly with the refugee community in in Ireland. What what are you doing there? That's right. Um, Alia Cornish is just doing wonderful work with that, um, drawing audiences in in all different kinds of ways and, and there's lots of different outreach projects going on and lots of different concerts at the Handelfest as well even for really young people coming along and we're kind of encouraging all different kinds of people through the doors to listen to the to the, the music that we do of course at our heart we're celebrating the heritage of, uh, of Irish mm. music stretching back hundreds of years and that's important that people everybody has a chance to hear that um, yeah and, and part and of that is I mean obviously everybody knows about Handel I think most people know Handel yeah. and Dublin and the first performance of Messiah obviously being here but there was also Mr Charles the Hungarian who was a kind of a, a rival of Handel's wasn't he? Yeah, that's right. He's a, he is a, a horn player from Hungary, uh, allegedly from Hungary, who, who came over to give um, Handel a bit of a run for his money. I, I, mean, I don't know how much he actually did that, but he's running concerts of Handel's music against Handel at the same time. Um, but I mean, he might have even have played in several of Handel's concerts. But uh, it was really fun putting together a programme which exists in the newspapers from the time of Mr. Charles's uh, concert. We could be really specific about what he he played. And he yeah, was, so and yeah. you did you did a CD, you did an album of of basically what is that concert? So you, exactly. you you're recreating that and, and touring that around as well. You're going to bring that to the UK. We're bringing that to the UK. We'll we'll have played that at um, a Handel Fest before, but it's it's going across um, uh, to St. Martin in the Field. We're going to Bruges, maybe up to Edinburgh as well, which is very exciting. But it's a, it's it's a it's a good it's another good story coming from from Ireland that we can we can kind of share with the rest of the world. Well, listen, it sounds like a very busy scene, and I've only scraped the I've only scraped the <laughs> surface there. Uh, and it's it's this Friday for the Bach Passion in St Patrick's Cathedral here in Dublin, and That's then right. Saturday in Drogheda. In Drogheda and IrishBarockOrchestra.com, I presume, will give us all of the details on that, and in fact, everything for the upcoming season Absolutely. as well. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you, Sean. Evening. Thank you. Egg Shell is the second collection of poems from Corkport Victoria Kenefick. Her her first collection, Eat or We Both Starve, focused on subjects like eating disorders, Catholicism and Irish history and went on to win the Seamus Heaney Prize for Best First Collection in 2022 and it was shortlisted for the T.S. Eliot Prize. In her new collection, she continues to dive deep and explores a number of emotional themes from early motherhood and miscarriage to the impact of a spouse's gender transition and the dissolution of a marriage. Uh, delighted to be uh, joined now by Victoria Kennefick to, to discuss these issues. I mean, I remember with Eat or We Both Starve thinking that this that this really is a poet bearing her heart uh, to us in, in that particular collection. This second collection, even more so, incredibly difficult topics that you had to address or that you, was there no choice but to address them in the collection, Victoria? Hi, Sean. Thanks so much for having me. Um, I don't think for me and the project that I seem to be engaged in as a poet that there was much of a choice because I'm so concerned with exploring all of the aspects of what it is to be human. And I just so happen to be this human and these things are happening to me and I almost feel duty bound to explore them. And poetry seems always to me a very useful 
beautiful and adaptable vehicle to explore things that maybe in our everyday common parlance are actually very difficult to talk about and incredibly, incredibly complicated, specifically, I suppose, with the issues that the book explores. Well, it's divided into two sections. And and do you call it, by the way, just egg? Um, And then I'm leaving a bit of a pause before I say shell, but it's actually written as egg stroke shell. What do you call the collection? I really like the dramatic pause in between. (laughs) I like the egg and then significant eye contact and then shell. So that's what I've been going with. Yeah, yeah. No, I can see I can see how that would work. The egg part, the egg is such a, a, I suppose, in many ways, potent symbol. And it's it's all about growth and, and new life. Explain to us what was to the fore of your mind in this particular part of the book. So initially, um, I suppose when I um, began the project, I was thinking very much on focusing on early motherhood and secondary infertility, which is something that I hadn't really seen explored before and didn't really know much about until it was something that I experienced myself. And the egg just seemed like such a wonderful vehicle for that. Obviously, as you say, a very significant, in fact, the uh, symbol of fertility, but also there was something about how strong it was, but also that it contains multitudes and has so many possibilities and cracking an egg, you know, you can make something out of it or a new creature emerges. So mm. it, it provided a really useful way for me to um, come at something that was difficult um, and that was challenging. And it was interesting then where that led me, obviously, in the second part of the collection. Yeah, um, I, I noticed in, in that first section, we have dotted throughout the first section, we have poems, number one, Ivy, number two, Fern, number three. I don't know if I can find in my notes here. I can't find, but I think there is, is it three or four uh, wildflowers mm-hmm. that we get uh, mentioned specifically here. Explain what they are or what they represent. Well, ultimately, I suppose having had um, four miscarriages myself after having um, a wonderful, healthy, exuberant child without Mm. difficulty, um, it it was such a strange experience because some of those uh, losses were during lockdown as well. And I really felt this um, bizarre grief where, you know, you're grieving something that hasn't happened, but your body isn't aware of that. So your body is all gearing up for this event and it takes a while for it to step down. And I, I found myself in this very strange liminal space where I was not, you know, going yeah. to, to meet these children, but equally I could feel their presence. So I thought it best to give them names and to in some way um, commemorate the fact that they existed even as a cell, even briefly yeah. for me, if nobody else. Yeah, well, I know it's, it's, it's a beautiful way of, of remembering them in that fashion. Will you set up um, as an early poem in that this first section, Night Baby for us? Of course, um, this poem um, is dedicated to my daughter and I think early motherhood is incredibly difficult for everyone and I found it very, very challenging in multiple ways. And one of the things that I found hardest, I suppose, was sleep and the fact that um, it's not something you can make somebody do. It's not something that you can force upon anyone. And particularly with babies, um, they become different creatures. So I had in my head this, you know, to try and understand it, a night baby and a day baby. So this is my attempt, I suppose, to um, bring peace to that night baby and also find solace in the fact that there's this whole community of people up at night for various reasons and even though we might feel very alone we're all there together Let's hear Night Baby so Night Baby I've never thought about the moon so much, considered it sister-like, watching us learn how to be together You in my arms perfect circle of your small mouth pressed to my breast Lunar light from my phone, my own brain, the moon all shining. It's scary how big the night is, how small we are in it. Think of the others up with us, a night nation of milk and mouths all fumbling towards each other in the dark, singing. The shape of you, a crescent against me. Little planet exploring your phases. Oh moon, be good to her in the ebb and flow of monthly life. Lick the path clean. But for now, sweet night baby, rock with me. Night baby from Egg Shell, the new collection from Victoria Kennefick. I mentioned that obviously the egg is the first part of the collection. The second part of the collection, Shell, deals predominantly with your spouse, your former spouse. 
there's a wonderful um, I've read where you explained what Shell actually has as a particular potent a potent uh, meaning within the trans community. Absolutely. And and this is one of those things, I think, where poetry can be such a gift and following particular motifs and patterns and images can really provide solace and, and understanding. So when um, my former spouse came out as trans, my, my natural reaction is to research when I'm in crisis and to try and understand um, what is happening and know as much as I can about it. And when I did my research, I found that um, in the trans community, a really lovely kind of way of speaking about somebody who doesn't know they're trans and hasn't realised yet is to refer to them as an egg. And once that epiphany has happened and they realise that um, they're trans, um, their egg cracks. So there's no going back and something beautiful emerges, but equally something is fragmented and shattered and broken um, to facilitate this growth and this um, movement towards their true and authentic selves. So that was just an incredible moment for me when I was writing the book mm. because I didn't know where I was going to go with the, the, the rest of the egg part. And then suddenly there was this um, pathway or this this kind of possibility yeah. of moving towards that, would that you, um, symbol. Will you read a poem that's from that second section then, which really struck me when I read it. The title of the poem is On Wondering Whether to Expunge the Word Husband from My Previous Poems. I will, Sean. On Wondering Whether to Expunge the Word Husband from My Previous Poems. I go back and count the number of times I have used the words husband, he, my husband in my poems. It isn't very often, but I am struck by what that H represents. Perpendicular lines, the walls, that horizontal roof under which we all sheltered, safe, the scaffold, the twig-like structure boxing us in. I thought I was happy. I thought he was happy too. That structure didn't hold. It collapsed, just like the straw house, like the stick house when the wolf blew and blew. There are no bricks anymore. I am not the wife. That W, a roller coaster of a letter. I've fallen down its side. I promise I won't use that word again for you. I'm glad your new name makes you happy, the way husband never could. Victoria Kanifik with On Wondering Whether to Expunge the Word Husband from my previous poems. Uh, this is from her new collection, Egg Shell. It, it must have been an incredibly difficult and emotional time um, when the person you love finds themselves in the situation that your spouse found themselves in. And then you have to process that in some way. What, uh, what did your writing provide for you in the midst of all of that, Victoria? Um, I think, as is so often the case with poetry, it was a saving grace and a place where I could, I think, explore that processing because I don't think that's something that people tend to speak about in this situation is that obviously your brain is a, is a physical entity and it has created neural pathways through familiarity and use of a particular name and particular pronouns and so on. So you literally, I certainly had to train my brain to make this switch from um, seeing this person as one person to the person that they truly and beautifully are. And so that is that is hard. It's actually work. And so I think in writing about it, um, it allowed me to get used to that transition that I was making. Um, because I think when somebody changes, and no matter what the change is, everyone else around them changes too. And so... You either embrace that and accept Mm. it and use it um, as a way of developing your own um, personality and your own um, personal experience or you push against it and reject it. And and it's okay to live in that space in between as well, which I think in some parts of the book there is that kind of grappling with what road am I going to take or, or the speaker is going to take. And so I think poetry is because of its form, because of the language it provides, because of its sim- symbolism and imagery, it it is a scaffolding. It is a machine. It's almost like a container mm. for those feelings and experiences that, you know, as I said previously, maybe more literal language is has shortcomings in that regard because it is just a very existential experience. Um, in terms of even looking back at memories now I've had with the person, you know, they're they're altered. And I'm not yeah. sure which is the real 
one and and, and what is real anyway when it comes to, to memory. So um, I once again, always so, so grateful um, for poetry. Yeah, and then uh, there's a, a lovely poem where you talk about getting a, a f- phone calls and where you've changed the person's name, obviously, in your contacts and you, you're constantly asking, who is she when that name comes up on your contacts? <laughs> Which I thought it shows us the humanity of the of the situation. However, you might finish with a poem because swans play a big part in the, in the collection as well. And this poem, Cygnus, the Swain and the Stars, in some ways talks about a transition of your own, I think. Exactly. And and I think swans have always been such an important um animal. Uh, for me, they've they've been there with me through my life in various different guises. I've had very strange experiences yeah. with swans. And I think there's something about their grace on the water and their clumsiness on land that really resonates with me because they also contain multitudes. Right. Um so this this is my, I suppose, attempt to um to move through my own, as you say, my own change. Cygnus, the swan in the stars. Is there anything to be said for gathering your own bones, being responsible like that, and taking the poor, tired and battered corpse of who you once were from its treacherous position and giving it a proper burial so it can ascend? The sting is there'll have to be a transition from one form to another. So I take the shape of a swan with large, powerful wings and a long, slender neck. My feet webbed to swim to those unimaginable depths where my earthly remains lie shattered. I'll retrieve them and put them in the ground. She was only human, engraved on my headstone. I am hoping to find my place in the sky, a swan in the stars, wings spread wide, Majestic, immortal. And that's Victoria Kennefick reading her poem Cygnus the Swan in the Stars and that from her new collection Egg Shell which is published by Carcanet Press and Victoria will be in Hodges Figgis in Dublin this Wednesday for the Dublin launch and you can get full information on carcanet.co.uk Thanks so much for being with us this evening Victoria Victoria Kennefick as I said with us there and that is our lot for this Monday evening Leah Murphy and Niall Fitzmaurice were the researchers Ollie Hamilton was the broadcast coordinator Ashton Gruffity was on sound this evening and tonight's programme was produced by Kay Sheehy. Back with you tomorrow night as usual, 7 o'clock here on RTE Radio 1. And Faith No Brain On will be with you after the news.